0: My thanks this week to our sponsor, Warfield Plants, Warfield, near Bridge North, Shropshire. Well, welcome to uh, Sunshine and Showers Britain. Some of the showers more a deluge in uh, some parts of the country, but so far we've missed those. So it is uh, a very warm invitation to join this week in the garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and hopefully answer some of your quandaries along the way. Late July and uh, into August, with the schools on holiday, should be a quiet time. uh, And I suppose uh, in the average summer, with dry weather, increasing the time between lawn mowings and howings, Certainly happens, but not this year. Everything is so green and lush. A visit to Britain's largest wholesale rose grower, Wharton's up near Halston in Norfolk, was a privilege and a pleasure this week. I've never seen maiden roses look better and, I might add, smell as sweet. They were all desperately worried up there about the pandemic. They have just four weeks to bud 1.5 1.5 million row stocks. And of course, it's quite a limited uh, band of skilled staff that do that knifed work. And if they had to self isolate, there's no replacement. You know, you can't do budding in September, for example. And so, no budders or no one to prepare budwood. And there would be no bushes to lift in the autumn of uh, 2022. It was the uh, second monthly visit to Wisley too to join the Nemesha Judging Forum. Some of the cultivars markedly improved and a few slipping back in flower power. Fortunately, we have quite a number of those Nemeshas duplicated at Hyde Hall and the scent when I was checking ours here in Essex before I went to Wisley on a warm spell of weather was really memorable. There are some really beautifully scented nemesia available now. The fragrance from some new huge flowered hybrid lilies also hung heavy in the air. They are as yet unnamed and grown on another year in their pots, should build the bulb to yield so that they have even taller stems and larger flowers in the second year. Once lilies have flowered and you've snapped out the dead heads, then... um, It's probably sensible if you've uh, still got red uh, scarlet lily beetles knocking about to spray the foliage with a systemic insecticide. That should uh, keep the lily beetle off and stop it laying its eggs and larvae, chewing off the leaves. And if you've done this after they've flowered, then uh, no pollinators going to be harmed. And by the time the new shoots grow next spring, well then, this systemic insecticide will certainly have gone long since. What's new? Well, I was uh, interested to read that uh, a new specialist glasshouse has been built at the NIAB, National Institute of Agricultural Botany, on their park farm site in Cambridge. It will be used to develop uh, higher-yielding and more climate-resilient crops. Amazing what these plant breeders can do and how scientifically advanced they are. Uh, It's been announced too that the Rosemore Garden in the southwest, the RHS Rosemore Garden show returns after a year gap on the 13th to the 15th of August with uh, Toby Buckland opening the show at 9.30. All of the RHS gardens have uh, an Alice in Wonderland theme trail for children, which is uh, proving pretty popular from uh, what I've seen in Essex. And of course the Hyde Hallflower Show will be from the 4th to the 8th of August. I can't make the opening day, but uh, I expect to be knocking about in the Floral Fantasia area for uh, the 5th to the 8th. We've still got quite a lot of sweet peas flowering freely there and there's plenty to see. And as it happens, in terms of home garden, I've made a late sowing of sweet peas. It was a Rachel de Tame I read last autumn who was picking sweet peas really late from a late sowing. And so I've got a few seeds of a heritage variety called Prince Edward of York. I've sown those and they're just coming through now. Whether I'll have a flower or two to present to the Prince the last week in September, who knows? I'll do my best to keep you informed. Now, on our interviews each week, we try to shine the light on an unsung hero and bring background information on all sections of the gardening world. This week, it's a good example. Chris Warner is a very successful breeder of garden roses. He's worked away tirelessly for 30 years, introducing many new cultivars to gardens at home and abroad from his small nursery in Newport, Shropshire. I mean, in the last 10 years alone, he has bred two Rose of the Year winners. His early goal was to develop disease-resistant cultivars and he's made great strides in uh, this direction. I mean, just some of his introductions. There's the climber, scent from heaven. There's a whole series of uh, what we call eye roses, single and semi-double roses with a bicolored eye. And then he's got the scented carpet for ground cover, And ginger ale, a shrub rose. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Chris Warner. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today... Chris Warner, I met Chris at the International Rose Trials near Hartford last week. We had a really good natter, and I feel quite privileged in his company because there are so many of his really beautiful roses in gardens across Britain, well and round the world. Chris, can I put you on the spot from the very minute we start and ask if I've got some roses in my garden, how do I follow you and breed new ones?
1: Well, you need to start with a glass house because it has to be done under cover because if you attempt to do it out of doors, more often than not, rain will wash away all the pollen that you use. So you start with two parents in the greenhouse, one the mother and the other one the father. The mother is the seed bearer and the father is the pollen producer. And usually at the beginning of May, you start the pollinating process which is to wait till the flower is about to open and then you remove all the petals except for one and you leave one petal to remind you that later on you've got to go and pollinate it. Then you remove all the male parts, which are called the stamens, which hold the pollen. And if you want to use that pollen, you store it in a cool temperature. A fridge would be fine. Then anything from six to 12 hours later, You collect the pollen from your father parent and you very, very carefully, most people use an index finger, dip your finger into the pollen and carefully put it onto the stigma which is on the centre of the flower. And if the cross takes, in other words, the pollen grows its tube and unites with the embryo, which is within the hip, and it has to grow about one inch, so you need the right temperature And if the temperature is below 60 Fahrenheit, the pollen will not grow the one inch or so that it has to travel in order to produce a fertilization. So you want a temperature above 60 and ideally below 90 Fahrenheit, which translating is 15 to about 32. And uh, within three to four weeks, if the cross has been successful, you will notice that the hip is beginning to swell. Now that hip stays on the plant until it is mature and that is when the hip, depends on the variety, can be any colour from yellow to quite a deep red. You harvest the seeds, separating each one, ideally put them in a packet and store them with a bit of vermiculite and put them in a fridge to persuade them that winter has occurred. And then early next year, January, February, you collect the seeds, space them quarter to half an inch apart within, into a, a seed compost and hey, presto, within four to five weeks, the new seedling will appear. And that's one of the exciting things, watching the top of the compost to see if a bubble appears and then eventually up come the cotyledons and you know you have got a new rose. Now let's say you've got 20 or 30 seeds within that tray, every single one of those seedlings will be different in appearance and colour to its neighbour. And that is because a speck of pollen has 10,000 different characteristics and the Female part also has 10,000 different characteristics so you're crossing 10,000 with 10,000 so the permutations are absolutely endless and you watch that seedling grow and develop, ideally you transplant it to give it more space, three to four inches from its neighbour and by late April, May and June you will start to get your first flowers and that is the magic time. Jack Harkness has described it as like having birthday presents every day. (laughs) You can get so excited that you just can't wait to see what colour the flower will be. Obviously, not every rose is successful, so you need a minimum probably of, of five to a thousand seedlings in order to have a commercially possible variety. Statistically, to get an outstanding new rose, it's thousands and thousands. Goodness, that's a fantastic set of instructions,
0: Chris. I think even I might be able to uh, try and do that. And is the period in the fridge enough? Because I seem to remember from a long time ago, that they used to chemically treat the seed. Is that not necessary?
1: Well, I use a combination here, I'm giving away my trade secret here, of 10% carota and 90% vermiculite, and I slightly moisten the mixture, and the seed is put in a polybag and shaken, so the mixture covers pretty well the whole of the seed. And this is what we call a stratification process, Ideally, you give it a bit of a warm treatment before you give it the cold treatment. The cold treatment would have to be a minimum of around four weeks, probably the ideal is six weeks before you sow.
0: Now, you must be almost like a racehorse breeder and have some little indication of what roses make good mother plants and what roses make good father plants.
1: Yes, indeed. There are good breeders but it is entirely trial and error. Super plants don't make necessarily super parents. The skill is in spotting the possibilities and acute observation, seeing that within a seedling there could be characteristics which taken further could develop into a wonderful new rose. But it's endless patience, endless patience. But when you've got the cycle going, in other words, uh, new seedlings coming every year, there's excitement for nine out of the 12 months of a year. And then when
0: you do see one of those seedlings which you think has potential, how long from that period to it being marketable?
1: Well, if that seedling looks outstanding on the bench, you propagate it by the technique known as budding. So one rose will turn into five or six the following year. Alternatively, you keep the plant and grow it on, on its own roots. That isn't as quick at getting a response and an assessment and a judgment. But I always keep my own root seedling just in case the buds don't take. And you could lose a will beater if you haven't kept the original seedling. So the original seedling goes out on its own roots. Right. And the... The evaluation process, year one, 90% go, year two, the remaining 10% will probably be down to 2%. Out of 10,000 seedlings, I would be very pleased if I got one or two introductions. Goodness. And that would
0: be how many years then? Five or six years?
1: Well, the process is you evaluate for three years, then you send it to the trials. That's another three years. And then you, if you think it's won awards, so it's commercially viable, you hope, but you don't know until the public say, yes, I like it, or no, I'm not interested. And That's another three years of building up plants. So it's nine or 10 years from the birth of the seedling or from the cross-pollination till it's actually in commerce. And that sounds an impossible length of time But it isn't, because you've got a sequence of seedlings coming on every year.
0: So once you've started, you're all right. Um, You're on the way. But then you're on a treadmill. I mean, uh, look, Chris, you've got to live at least another nine years to see this year's seedlings through. What?
1: Yes, but you'll know by year four or five whether or not you've got a winner. Oh, right. But it's, it's the production increasing the volume that takes the time. Yeah, But you don't really know you've got a winner until it's out and about in the world and what rose grows well in UK would be absolutely appalling in the United States or Japan for instance. I've got lots of varieties in commerce around the world that have not put out in the UK, but they're good in other countries. I've got a silver medal winner in the Australian rose trials last year, I sent it to my agent as a rambling Persica hybrid. He took one look at it and put it in the trials in Australia. It duly won an award as a climber. And the reason for that was, and this was his comment when the judges asked him about it, he said, any rose that sends up a 19-foot shoot, I take to be a climber. And that's what it did in Australia, whereas in the UK it grew three or four feet. Oh, right. Well, now,
0: can you list some of your greatest successes in the UK, then? And we need to include, I think, some of your eye roses, don't you? You need to tell us a bit. The first
1: successful ones were the patio climbers. These have flower from the bottom to the top, the top being seven or eight feet, and they flower from the bottom to the top. And they were a progression of what we had up till then, and they are essentially a pillar. They don't go sideways, they go straight up, but they do have the attribute of flowering from the bottom to the top. So the best of the earlier ones was Warm Welcome and Laura Ford. The progression now is my latest one, which is called Onward and Upward. And this is a no-spray rose.
0: That's a good name, Onward and Upward. I love those names which explain what they do. There's a sweet pea somebody's just launched this season called Top to Bottom.
1: Yeah, brilliant. A rose name is half the rose in the sense that that's half the sales. So give it a bad name and it won't, no matter how grand it is or superb, it won't sell. As a breeder, you have to be aware of this. But at the same time, I'm unhappy that it has to be happy anniversary and happy wedding and birthday greetings and all this sort of thing. They don't necessarily describe the rose, which I like the name to do.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: And the naming
0: works pretty well with your persica.
1: Most of your listeners I know won't know. There is a wild rose growing in Iran called Holthemia persica. It is a desert plant. The plant has adapted to desert conditions, the extreme heat by day, but relatively low possible freezing temperatures at night. And that plant has adapted to its growing conditions by only having three leaves. And for many years, the specialists wondered if it was a true rose. But they've now decided, yes, it is a rose, because that's the way it's adapted to its environment. But we had to turn a desert plant into a garden-worthy one. And that took me, personally, 30 years. Uh, Jack Harkness, that that wonderful breeder from Hertfordshire, who was my hero, I suppose, is the best way to describe him. He started the whole process and presented a list for the Oxford Centenary Conference of his new hybrids, which only flowered once, but had these lovely flowers with the magic red eye, as I call it. But all of them were not healthy. In other words, you put them in the garden and they would 95% defoliate with black spot. So I was extremely fortunate. My first cross was with a new variety from an amateur and the variety was called Baby Love. And Baby Love set new standards of health in roses when it was introduced. And I crossed Tigress with Baby Love, giving me 30 or 40 hybrids. And from the best of those, we started a breeding programme with the amateurs. And I distributed a variety I called Chew Tiggle, variations on tigress, to a group who wanted to join the species breeding project. And Tiggle turned to be a non-existent parent. A chappy Ronnie Rawlins, who lives in Yorkshire, wanted to join the product. I said, I'm sorry, I've got no Tiggles left. You'll have to have Chew Tingle. So he crossed Chew Tingle with a very healthy hybrid, which had a healthy rose, fully remontant, with a red eye, but the eye was the same colour as the rest of the petal, so you could hardly see it. But that particular rose was a progression in health, and that was the start of me having a successful breeding programme, which led to For Your Eyes Only and Bright as a Button and Angel Eyes and Smiling Eyes and Eye of the Tiger, to name just a few.
0: Amazing, um, and and just absolute chance, Chris, eh?
1: Absolute chance at that fellow in Yorkshire. Yeah, there's been a, a lot of incidences like that in my life. You can be the most skilled breeder in the world, but you do definitely need strong elements of luck. And the patio climbers, for instance, came into being by chance. And having seen I was getting something different, obviously I then went with it. I've now got new lines going with stable stripes, uh, one of which, Chew Sargent, won the Grand Prix in France two or three years ago. That's the top award in France. Now, this has red flowers and white stripes, and every flower is like its neighbour. So that's what I mean when I say stable stripes. That, I hope, will be going into commerce in the UK, but is two or three years away, and I think into France next year. Chris,
0: I'm in awe of all of that. And we'll be listening to this interview several times because there's so much useful detail there. And in retirement, I think I'm going to get a greenhouse and have a bit of a go at this rose breeding, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Wonderful. Well, uh, another aspect of it is the absolute joy and fun of sharing information with other breeders. And I once travelled from UK to New Zealand... 29 hours of flying, I sat next to Colin Horner, who was my fantastic rose friend for many years, sadly no longer with us. We did nothing but talk rose breeding for 29 hours. <laughs> and to the, to, the, to the average person, we would be bonkers. But it was total fun. Yeah.
0: Well, now finally, Chris, what should people listening here who are just homeowners and have a plot of land or just a space or a pot... What should they look for when they're buying a rose? Should they go for bare root or should they go for container?
1: Well, it depends what you need. Containers give you instant colour, so they are a fantastic progression. There's nothing to beat transforming a garden from bare, barren soil to suddenly vibrant colour. It's a wonderful experience. From the point of view of the bush itself getting established they establish better from bare roots because the problem with pot roses is it's in the soil of the pot and that might be good, bad or indifferent. Whereas if you make up your ground, you know you're starting with a good start.
0: Uh, Now Chris, uh, our producer, Rich, (laughs) has instructed me that I have to ask you what should he do to make his roses grow better?
1: There is a new product on the market, it's Tom Nellis, and it's Uncle Tom's Rose Tonic. It's sold to the trade as Farm Foss. it is essentially a mixture of potassium phosphide, and it is entirely environmentally friendly, and it works. I went to a conference about 20 years ago on new products for the whole of the horticultural industry, And the chap was from one of the major chemical companies, and I asked the question, what's on the market new for roses? Because we've had nothing since Nimrod Tea. And he said, the answer to that is absolutely nothing, because it's too expensive to get clearance. Now, there's a chap at the same conference who came and found me and said, we've got a product we're trying out on hops. Would you like to try it on roses? So nothing ventured, nothing gained. Yeah, I said, I'll give it a go. I found that that product stopped black spot and downy mildew for four to six weeks, uh, that sort of interval. If you used it every two or three weeks, you wouldn't have any disease. But nobody wants to use it. It's very easily applied, either by a watering can or with a sprayer. That product stops the disease and it also almost doubles the performance of your plant. It is a fantastic product. The whole of the rose trade now is starting to use it. NIAB have trialled it and found it came out higher than anything else. It is a wonder product. It's relatively cheap. It's environmentally friendly. I wish, you know, all people who like gardens would buy it. And it's Uncle Tom's Rose Tonic. Chris, thank you
0: you've been an absolute joy. We should in closing perhaps remind people about uh, the rose society u k where we meet people like you yeah
1: well, I hope it helps a few people to love the rose, which is my number one wish
0: We have introduced now a q and a a question and answer sessions, and uh, this week somebody asks My hanging basket looked beautiful, it was absolutely full of flowers, but now the basket is looking quite sparse with only a few blooms dangling down around the side. Should I have been cutting the plants back? What should I have done to keep the flowers in good condition and can I retrieve it? Well, not one question, three questions. Uh, And of course there are many questions about hanging baskets and the first thing is that... uh, If you're planting one, the bigger the basket, the better. It's much easier to keep them green, full of leaves and flowers if you've got one that's 14 inch in diameter, which is a a bit bigger than most that you see. So what to do about it? Well, if there are just a few blooms dangling around the side, you can certainly start to uh, trim things back. Some plants, of course, trim back better than others. If it's seed-raised lobelia, and you shear that back, you take off all of the seed pods, and that will grow again and flower very well, and you can shear back two or three times. If you've got some of the older kinds of petunias that have actually seed pods and set seed, then yes, they can be uh, trimmed off. But quite often when plants uh, do go a bit thin in hanging baskets and window boxes, it's because uh, they've been allowed to get dry And if you have um, a hot day, and we've had several hot days in the last uh, month or so, and the compost gets really dry, I'm afraid this checks the plants uh, and it takes them a little time to recover. My regular tip to people is as you walk past your hanging basket each day, just put your hand on the bottom and lift it a little bit. Not too much because if you do it will come off the hook above and you'll be left holding the whole thing. So just lift it a bit to check the weight and if it's wet it will be heavy and if it needs watering it will be light and you'll get that weight test very quickly. You'll get experience of that and it'll be much easier to keep it correctly watered. If you haven't put a slow release fertiliser, one that keeps feeding for six months in the compost when you plant it up the basket. Then every 10 days or so, uh, you really need to add a bit of liquid uh, plant food. Uh, It's a restricted root system and plants just need a lot of moisture and feeding to keep them growing. One of the tips that I like to pass on too is that if when you're making up a mixed basket, you pop in a few nasturtium seeds, they're a very good insurance policy. If you get a gap or two, then the uh, nasturtiums grow up and fill the gap. If uh, your basket stays really green and full of flower, then the nasturtium won't have much space uh, and will just uh, sit there. I read that Sutton's have uh, a new nasturtium, one called Purple Emperor for next year, 2022. Uh, we did, certainly didn't have it in our 2019 trials, so I'll be interested to see that. Uh, And perhaps one way for me to see it will be just to pop a few seeds into a mixed hanging basket. The tailpiece, well, I've been tidying up at home and I came across um, the results of some research by scientists at the former Wellsbourne Vegetable Research Centre. They found the bigger the plant and the bigger the crop the lower the concentration of nitrates in fruits and vegetables. So those of you who question why some gardeners are virtually addicted to growing giant veg, now you know. If you grow big ones, then you've got uh, less nitrates. So goodbye, tiny baby courgettes and, of course, those tiny little sweet corn. I never could see the point of those. You want a really good big onion, and when you cut that, boy, that's juicy and full of flavour. So I'm all for the Giants. Thanks for listening. Hope you have time to join us next week. My thanks this week to our sponsor, Warfield Plants. Warfield, near Bridge North, Shropshire to my producer, Rich Charman, and of course, to you for listening. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus